Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. I have some good news to report. During the 4th of July weekend, I had a ton of free time, and I dedicated it to reading. However, nearly none of it was horrific. I finally wrapped up Clan of the Cave Bear by Jean M. R. L. That book is certainly no weekend read. It's lengthy, and it's also made my list of favorites. It's well-written, well-researched, and maintains its thematics with consistency. The story also focuses on European early modern humans, which those folks don't get a lot of representation in fiction. It's an area of personal fascination as well. So, Homo sapiens, that's us, have been around for mm, about 400,000 years, and that's from very generous theories. If you didn't know this, we aren't the only humans that have lived on this planet. How about those cousins of ours, Homo erectus? Those people had a run of two million years. Two million years and barely got to simple tools and fire. Paleolithic anthropologists haven't come across a single fidget spinner. What do they have to show for it? What are those people doing? Anyway, the book Clan of the Cave Bear was a wonderful read, and I doubt that we're going to make it to the two million year mark, but maybe that's a conversation for a different podcast than Tales to Terrify. The second book I read was Ready Player One by Ernest Klein. It's a book about a virtual reality online game in which the entirety of the world participates. I found it to be a quick and fun read. No real horror to be found in this one, though. The third, Every Heart a Doorway by Shannon McGuire. First name, I'll apologize if I mispronounced that one. Okay, this one wasn't a horror book, but it's about a school for those children that come back through the wardrobe or the looking glass, and they're now sort of damaged because they spent a few years in some sort of fantasy land. That's a pretty nightmarish premise, in my opinion, but it's also a short read and pretty fun. Let's hear some scary stories. 
Alex Svartzman is a writer, translator, and game designer from Brooklyn, New York. Over 90 of his short stories have appeared in Nature, Galaxy's Edge, Intergalactic Medicine Show, and many other magazines and anthologies. He won the 2014 WSFA Small Press Award for Short Fiction and was a finalist for the 2015 Canopus Award for Excellence in Interstellar Fiction. He is the editor of the Unidentified Funny Objects annual anthology series of humorous sci-fi and fantasy. His collection, Explaining Cthulhu to Grandma and Other Stories, and his steampunk humor novella, H.G. Wells' Secret Agent, were both published in 2015. His website is www.alexsvartzman.com. Link will be in the show notes. And now, Alex Svartzman's A Thousand Cuts. In her dream, Emma is reliving a childhood memory. She is four years old, and she is locked in her room for the evening because Mother is having a visitor. She always asks, but this one isn't her father either. Emma is picking at a week-old scab on her knee. She is peeling it back a little bit at a time, fascinated rather than scared by the small pain it causes. It begins to bleed. A small part of her mind knows this to be a dream. She remembers that evening, and there was no blood, only a patch of pink skin underneath the scab. But in her mind's eye, the bleeding is getting worse. She is trying to contain the flow with her little fingers, but the thick red liquid gushes out, staining her dress. The blood flows faster and faster, until it's pouring like water from a faucet, pooling in a small puddle by her feet. She screams. Emma wakes up with a start. She is covered in sweat, her heart is racing, and she fights to untangle herself from the damp sheets. It takes her several moments to focus, to remember that she is half a world and two decades away from that memory. She stares at Mark, who is sleeping peacefully on his side of the bed, and the anxiety drains from her. She was told that their relationship was doomed from the start. You have so little in common, said her friends. Not even the same language. It's a fling, said Mother. He will go back to America soon and forget all about you. Everyone expected Mark to break her heart, but he proposed instead. And now here she is, in a large house in Greenwich, Connecticut, where sights and sounds and smells are all exotic to her, and no one speaks any Russian. She is adjusting well, she thinks, except for an occasional nightmare. She watches Mark sleep for a while, and eventually drifts back into slumber, uninterrupted by dreams. Emma is home alone waiting for Mark to return from work. She is chopping vegetables on a granite countertop in their kitchen when she sees the Dumavai. She is startled, and the knife bites deep into her index finger. She recognizes it from her grandmother's tales. Dumavai is a mischievous house spirit, a supernatural trickster that can help or hinder people on a whim. In Russia, every house is said to have one. Three inches tall, it watches from behind a coffee mug. It grins nastily as she tries to stem the blood with a paper towel. 
Dogs are attached to people, and cats are attached to houses, she remembers her grandmother saying. Damavai are something in between. They could follow you to the ends of the earth, but only if wherever you go becomes a true home. Grandmother taught that Damavai must be shown respect, or there'd be no end of trouble. She pours a bit of milk into a saucer and places it gently on the countertop. Damavoy struts out from behind the mug, walks over to the saucer, and sniffs at the milk. It then looks up at Emma and points a diminutive hand at her cut finger. That, it says in a voice that sounds like a rustle of leaves. I want that. It eyes hungrily the red blots that are blossoming on the sheet of paper towel wrapped around Emma's finger. She hesitates. I only want a job, Damavoy whines. If you won't give me some, I'll have to find it elsewhere. Yardman's neck. It is so soft and exposed when he sleeps. One deep slice at the jugular, and I can gorge myself. Reluctantly, Emma unwraps her makeshift bandage and lets a large drop of blood fall into the saucer of milk. Emma's most vivid memory is from her adolescence back in Novgorod. She is in the bathroom, holding a razor blade. She watches her fifteen-year-old self in the mirror, watches as the sharp edge of the razor slowly parts the skin of her forearm. The pain is quite tolerable, sharp and delicious. Almost pleasant. Nothing like the dull ache from the bruises her stepfather had caused. Emma once read about something called the death of a thousand cuts. The original reference had to do with an ancient form of torture, but it was the concept of a thousand cuts that lodged itself firmly in her mind. She took to counting each incision, each instance of physical pain drowning out the greater hurt inside her. She keeps meticulous count, telling herself that she mustn't ever reach a thousand. The bathroom door squeaks in protest. Emma looks up sharply. In the mirror, she sees the reflection of Mother in the doorway. The mix of disapproval and sadness in Mother's widened eyes causes the worst kind of pain yet. They never talk about it afterward. By the time she's nineteen, Emma approaches the dreaded number. It's the hardest thing she's ever done, but she forces herself to stop at nine hundred and eighty cuts. Her left shoulder and forearm are a patchwork of tiny scars. Now that she is feeding the Damavoy every day, Emma has once again taken to keeping count. She makes the incisions on her feet and lower legs, where they are hidden behind socks and stockings. Despite her best efforts, Mark must instinctively know something is wrong. They are growing further apart with each passing month. Once a cheerful force of nature, he is now preoccupied, quiet, maybe even depressed. During the day, he hardly ever looks directly into her eyes. At night, they have sex infrequently, and only in the dark. For a time, 
She suspects there's another woman. Perhaps Mark turns the lights off so he can imagine a different face and body when they're together. She takes to sniffing his clothes for perfume and checking the call logs on his phone. She discovers nothing and is strangely disappointed because, absent an affair, she must be the cause of the problem. Emma has trouble making new friends. She spends her days in the house, homesick and miserable. By the time the number of cuts reaches 500, she still hasn't managed to become pregnant. Mark treads lightly on the subject, but she senses his disappointment. Emma dreams of Mother standing in that bathroom doorway again, but in this dream, Mother doesn't walk away. You are hurting yourself again, Mother says. I thought you outgrew that. I did, Emma says. I am. I have good reason to this time. Nonsense, Mother says. Damavari are mean tricksters, but they aren't killers. It won't really hurt you, or your precious husband. It's just an excuse for you to resume a disgusting habit. No. Emma glares at Mother's reflection in the mirror. You don't know that creature's mind. You don't know what it might do. Why risk angering it over a few drops of blood? I know you, says Mother. You are timid, indecisive, weak. You'll lose your husband one way or the other. Emma spins around to confront Mother face to face, to tell her that she is wrong and to shout obscenities at her. But all she finds is an empty doorway. On her 27th birthday, the count stands at 906. Damavoy has grown fat on Emma's daily offerings, bloated with her blood like a satiated mosquito. Things are going badly with Mark. There are never any fights, but they hardly speak to each other anymore. This morning he left for work and hadn't even called to wish her a happy birthday. She wonders what will come first, a thousandth cut or an end to their marriage. She doesn't want to find out. She runs a scalding hot bath and climbs in with a razor blade. She read that bleeding out is nearly painless. Submerged in water, she slits her wrists making the cuts number 907 and 908. It won't be the thousandth cut that kills her, and she lets that be her act of defiance against fate. She closes her eyes and imagines that she is once again an innocent four-year-old with a scraped knee. She is drifting in and out when Mark walks in. He drops the flowers he'd been carrying and snatches her from the tub, Mark cries as he does his best to bandage her wrists. White lilies soak in blood-tinged water on the bathroom floor. He holds her tight until the ambulance arrives. In the hospital room, she tells him everything. Emma is very anxious. Mark might not believe her. He might say there is no such thing as a domovoy. After all, the word doesn't even have an English translation. He might question her sanity. 
The fact that she cuts herself daily may be the final straw that breaks their already strained marriage. Emma lets go of her fears. She accepts all those possibilities and just talks to him. Mark listens to everything without comment. He hugs her and holds her to him for a very long time. Then he takes off his shirt and shows her the inside of his forearm. It is covered in hundreds of tiny scars. It threatened to hurt you if I refused, he whispers. At the usual time, the Damavoy climbs onto the countertop, but the saucer isn't there. It looks up to see Mark and Emma together, holding hands. The house spirit shrieks in frustration and stumbles back, retreating under their resolute gaze. It threatens and curses, and eventually slinks off into some dark corner. Unafraid, Emma and Mark look into each other's eyes and smile. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. That was Alex Svartzman's A Thousand Cuts, as read by Heather Thomas. Heather Thomas is a jewelry expert by day and master of none by night, dabbling in costuming, art, music, writing, and, of course, narration. She is a lifelong fan of all things horror and enjoys reading stories and novels to her friends and family when they let her. She is very excited that this appearance on Tales to Terrify is her narration debut, she lives in Denver, Colorado, with her husband and her spoiled rotten cat, Oni. Thank you, Heather. Our second story of the night comes from H.L. Fullerton, who writes fiction, mostly speculative, occasionally about buttons, which is sometimes published in places like Lackington's Devilfish Review and Daily Science Fiction. Lend me your ears as we listen to H.L. Fullerton's The First and Second Offerings.
The button was the first offering. Vivi discovered it when she went searching for a pair of trouser socks. She was a haphazard housekeeper at best. The most likely place for clean clothes was not her bureau drawers, but the dryer. Likewise, dirty clothes were tossed on the floor rather than in hampers. And clean plates sat idle in the dishwasher. But she was the tiny bungalow's sole occupant and didn't worry about it being neat and clean so much as she did safe. Vivi walked into the laundry room, flicked on the light, and stopped dead at the sight of it. It was an ordinary plastic button, nickel-sized, cherry red, with a quartet of holes in the center. But it wasn't hers. She never wore red. It clashed with her hair, and reminded her of the night... Vivi stayed away from red. It's just a button, she said. Then she exited the laundry room and checked that her doors and windows were locked. She peeked in closets and under beds in case someone was lying in wait. When she was sure the house was empty except for herself, she returned to the laundry room and rummaged through the dryer for socks. She thought, maybe when I look the button will be gone. But it wasn't. Vivi picked it up and turned it over. I might, she thought, have a patterned shirt that this belongs to. It's possible I never noticed its buttons were red. So she pulled clothes from the dryer and folded them, paying extra attention to button color. She didn't find a match, so she proceeded to her bedroom and went through her clothes piece by piece, checking cuffs and tails for those hidden buttons. Nothing. I could have tracked it in on the bottom of my shoe, she thought. But she knew that not feeling a button attached to the sole of her sneaker was about as likely as a princess sleeping peacefully on a pea. Her lungs huffed, her pulse danced a jig. She told herself, you changed the locks after you moved in. You have the only set of keys. No one breaks in to leave a button on someone's floor. You're being silly. You don't believe in ghosts? Humans can't walk through walls or crawl through dryer vents. Nothing came up from the sewer line. Sky's in jail. You're safe. But how did the button end up on the laundry room floor? Vivi stayed home and felt unseen eyes cataloging her every move. She peered past curtains and between barred windows, and saw nothing but the occasional chipmunk or dog-walker. Thank God they weren't rabbits. That night, she stared at the ceiling and willed herself to sleep, but every creak, every distant howl, startled her. The night seemed unusually active. Something pattered above her. A mouse, probably surveying the attic. In her head, its footsteps mushroomed into clomping boots. She bit her lip to keep the screams inside. You're letting your imagination run away with you, she thought. The button has nothing to do with him. The phone rang at 2.12. 
He shouldn't have her new unlisted number or phone access, but she knew it was him. Not a wrong number. She crept from her bed and sidled near the answering machine, unwilling to let him whisper directly into her ear. A mechanized voice intoned, Leave a message. She held her breath. You won't get away! Sky, but the terrible sky, with the crazy rabbit-whispering voice, raspy and broken, as if he'd screamed his real self away. The rats told me what you're doing. They'll eat you, Vivi. Her name, a growl in the back of his throat. Eat you up! Eat you! His howling was cut short by dial tone. First rabbits, now rats. Oh, Sky, what happened to you? To suppress the fear welling up, she joked. When he gets to Chinchillas, it's time to start worrying. Her voice was rocky, but the familiarity of the refrain steadied her. She knew her worries wouldn't be assuaged so easily this time. Not with memories hounding her. She told herself, The time of rabbits passed. The year of the rat will end, too. And this time I won't be caught in the middle. She returned to bed, pulled the covers over her head, and slept. In the morning... Vivi got ready for work and pretended yesterday never happened. Then she caught sight of the red button on her kitchen table, the answering machine flashing one new message. She almost threw out the button, erased the message. But no, she might need proof. If not for the authorities, then for herself. As long as she had something real to hold on to, she wasn't going crazy. She grabbed her keys and walked into the connected garage. She got into her car, started it, locked herself in, then raised the garage door. Because taking precautions never hurt anybody. She backed out and watched the garage door lower itself. A strange barking sound made her look around. A gray squirrel glared at her from the pink flowering tree in her front yard. Its tiny sides heaved like a bellows and it announced her presence. She turned her head, keeping both hands on the steering wheel, to see whom the squirrel was warning. Under the pines that bordered her yard stood a trio of deer. Her eyes met theirs, and the deer bowed their heads. Panic gnawed on her heart. Sky in the backyard conversing with rabbits, Sky screaming that the weed killer she used on the driveway caused birth defects in their young. You're killing them, Vivi, killing them. If she found tiny mouse guts strewn across her porch when she came home, Vivi never wanted to see another dead animal. The deer are just waiting for you to leave so they can eat your daylilies, Vivi said. That's all. They didn't come for a powwow. She reversed down her driveway, refusing to glance towards them, and headed to work. She dealt with people law these days, mostly trusts and estates. When she first met Skye, she practiced environmental law. 
He was an activist with Earth First and approached her about filing a class-action lawsuit naming woodland creatures pushed out of their environs by urban sprawl as her plaintiffs. Give voice to the voiceless, he said. The lawsuit was thrown out, as Vivi had known it would be, as she had told Skye and his compatriots. But it was more about the media blitz the case generated than winning. At the local level, they had some success in setting aside acreage for open land and limiting new housing developments, even stopped a few that would have encroached on habitats of vanishing species. Vivi had found Skye's mix of passion and naivete endearing. He believed man and nature were interconnected. Tibet should be free. Female circumcision should be abolished. Everyone was entitled to a living wage, and war never solved anything. He was against animal testing, vivisection, deforestation, overfishing, and McMansions. He thought humanity could fix what they'd broken, and that life in a harmonious Garden of Eden-like state was attainable in his lifetime. It was a nice contrast to her view of humanity as a massive, clueless, self-destructive morons. Three weeks after they met, she moved in with him. Talk about clueless, self-destructive morons, she thought, pulling into a parking spot outside the law firm she'd joined post-Sky. More squirrels than usual foraged in the trash cans dotting the sidewalk. The squirrels are neutral. Backyard, park, forest, it's all the same to them. But the rabbits say the raccoons are pushing for revolution. She took a deep breath and pushed Sky from her mind. But she kept a hand on her purse and an eye on the squirrels as she entered the building. She didn't relax until she'd reached her office. On her desk was a shiny silver button. Vivi threw it in the trash. Someone screamed. Vivi's head snapped towards her office door. Her heart kicked into warp speed. Something was happening down the hall. Her feet tangled with her chair as she stood and rushed to the threshold. Her hip caught on the corner of the desk, and she ricocheted into a file cabinet. Hurry, hurry! Vivi poked her head into the hall, more shrieking. It sounded like Beth. Vivi ducked back into her office and locked her door. She eyed the window, but seven floors was too high to jump, and she wasn't even sure what she was running from. She crawled under her desk and put her hands over her ears. The screaming, oh God, the screaming, please let it end. The night sky was arrested. Vivi had walked through their front door and found him slaughtering wild rabbits in their living room. Carcasses strewn across the couch. Blood splattered across the television. Sky bent over a terrified bunny with a knife. Carving. Carving. The screaming. First the rabbits, then her. Sky muttering, I am a humane god. I am a humane god with each slash. Three yelping rabbits went under the knife before Vivi moved. 
she dialed 911 and snatched up a surviving rabbit, its body shaking against hers. Sky turned towards her. He hardly looked like himself. Give me the rabbit, Vivi. It's almost over. I'll clean everything up as soon as I'm finished. She backed away. Put down the knife. Don't get involved, Vivi. You'll regret it. His eyes. Oh, God, his eyes. They were empty and looking at her like she was in his way. Sky, just let the rest go. I'll help you clean up. Give me the rabbit. Sky, they won't stop. I keep telling them to stop and they won't. The things they want. I am a humane god. He came at her. Later, Vivi wondered why she didn't drop the rabbit or throw it at him. She could have escaped while he killed it, avoided being injured at all. Instead, she clung harder to the rabbit, Sky's knife slicing her arms, trying to get at it. Vivi fought free of him, clocked him with the statue of Buddha, and ran down the hall. She locked herself in the bathroom. She placed the rabbit in the sink, wound towels around her bleeding arms, tried to figure out how one went from crouching in the backyard, talking to rabbits about worldly concerns, to inviting them inside for butchering. She stroked the rabbit's fur. It trembled. Sky pounded on the door, screaming, screaming. Be very, very quiet, she whispered, trying hard to hold it all together. He's hunting rabbits. Then she fell to her knees, bawling, and vomited. Vivi was curled under her desk, remembering that terrible night. Twenty-three dead rabbits, one survivor. She'd asked the policeman if they needed the live rabbit as evidence, and he looked at her bandaged arms as if she were insane. He kept saying, don't you want to keep it? And she explained once more that these were wild animals, that they did not raise rabbits. When she set the lone survivor on the lawn, Sky went crazy in the back of the squad car, threatening to come back for it and her to finish what he'd started. Twenty-three dead, yet he was only tried for attempted murder. Thinking of that poor rabbit, probably a coyote's dinner later that night, Vivi uncurled from beneath the desk and crawled to her office door. No, no, she told herself. Stay hidden. Don't go out there. But she was propelled to her feet. She had to help. Had to. And out into the hall. The screams were subsiding now. She heard a murmur of voices coming from the break room still ordering herself to turn around and go back to the safety of her office, Vivi ran down the hall towards the amassing crowd. You're not needed, she thought. Stop running. But she couldn't. She pushed her way to the front, saw a mouse cowering by a microwave, Dan about to smash it. No! She yelled and scooped up the critter. Drop it, drop it, it'll bite you. But instead, her hands cradled the disease-carrying vermin. 
Dan said, What are you doing? And Vivi didn't know. Maybe this was PTSD. She'd felt compelled to save the mouse. Still did. Which freaked her out, because this was something Skye would have done. Back before he went crazy. I'm taking it outside. She'd release it. Like the rabbit. It'll just come back in. Let me... Vivi hunched over the mouse, a bird of prey, shadowing its kill. No, nothing dies. Beth, it had been her screaming, pulled Dan back. Beth was a friend from law school. She knew about Skye and the rabbits. Go ahead, Vivi. Vivi carted the unprotesting mouse down six flights of stairs and out the front door. Two steps into the sunlight, a squirrel heralded her presence. She stopped. Seven or eight squirrels and a couple of chipmunks lined the sidewalk. As she bent down to release the mouse, whatever force had driven her thus far had left, and she was frozen in place. Her honor guard rose on their hind legs, revealing a collection of buttons. I know what you're doing, Vivi! Vivi averted her eyes and deposited the mouse on the ground, pretending not to see their gifts. Then she said, Sky can choke on his damned rats, and hurried back into the building. She found the nearest washroom and scrubbed her hands raw. First a rabbit, now a rat. Well, mouse. When I start saving chinchillas, it's time to worry. But Vivi's magical refrain fell flat. After work, Vivi returned home to find a cluster of woodchucks circling the tree in her front yard. She ignored the squirrel trumpeting her arrival and pulled into her garage, sealing herself off from the outside world. Inside, she found another message from Skye on her machine. Give back the button, Vivi. Give it back. You'll regret it if you don't. Vivi, 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 Vivi. She pressed stop, cutting off the disturbing hum. But the sounds reverberated through her body, leaving her unsettled. Each message made her feel less like herself, as if he were stealing pieces of her, trapping her back in that night as if it would never end. She worried she was catching his crazy. She unplugged phones from Jack's, let him try to reach her now. Tomorrow she'd call the prison, tell them about Skye's messages, insist they search his cell. She wouldn't tell them about the red button. That she'd keep to herself. In the morning, she looked out her front window and saw a Porcupine sharpening his claws on her tree. She tried to focus on the bright side. Perhaps he'd scare the noisy squirrel away. But the influx of wildlife into her domain made her anxious. What were they doing here? Could Skye really talk to animals? Had he sent them after her? Maybe she should give the button back. Would the squirrels return it? Bring more buttons? What did the button mean? Was it a retainer? Vivi tried to reason with herself 
but she wasn't listening. She readied for work in rote fashion and backed her car out of the garage. Just another day, she said. Just another day. And then she saw the tree. Four faces had been carved into its trunk, one atop the other. She recognized two of them, herself and Skye. Vivi almost drove through her garage door in her rush to get back inside. "'What is happening?' she screamed at her four walls. She paced. "'Think, think, what should she do?' There was a freaking totem pole in her front yard, topped with pink flowers, carved by woodchucks and porcupines. Shit! 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 She plugged the phone cords back into their jacks. The phone rang. Sky. Vivi was done hiding. She grabbed the phone, prepared to tell him what he could do with his stupid red button. But it wasn't Sky. It was the ADA who'd prosecuted him. Vivi told her about the crazy messages, his threatening her, ranting about stolen buttons and rats. Rats? the ADA said. What did he say about them, specifically? Vivi got a bad feeling. She pictured a cell littered with rat corpses, blood everywhere. He said the rats were talking to him, telling him things about me, that they'd eat me up. Eat you up, Vivi! Eat you up! The ADA cleared her throat. <laughs> he said that? The rats would eat you? Yes. Vivi could hear the woman tapping her pen. Did... Did something happen? The reason I called... Sky's dead. Vivi exhaled in relief, then remembered the ADA's curiosity about the rats. How? He asphyxiated. Oh, you seemed... About the rats? Did they eat Sky? Vivi shivered. Are you sure you want to hear this? No. Yes, Vivi said. They found a mouse in his throat, as if he tried to swallow it whole. Sky can choke on his rats. She'd said that. But how could he have known? Unless the mouse told him. Hysteria edged in. Don't forget, the squirrels were there, too. Vivi? Are you okay? I'm here, Vivi said. I mean, I'm fine. It's just... I knew he was crazy, but I never thought... We found a cell phone. Chewed up. He also had a hidden collection of buttons. Shiny metallic ones, mostly. He told one of the guards they were offerings. The ADA paused. There was something written on his cell wall. The first step to godhood is the relinquishment of one's self. Does that mean anything to you? Vivi was afraid it did. Lots of things were making sense now. But she couldn't explain any of it to the woman on the other end of the phone. She remembered Skye talking about creation myths and animal spirits. 
how once the wilderness was so large and powerful that man had felt insignificant amongst her many creatures. How he prayed for guidance from his fellow creatures, treated them as honored brethren. But now that man had conquered nature, banished wildlife to small plots of earth, maybe those creatures needed someone to guide them. Faced with extinction, they might pray for someone to save them, someone familiar with the world they needed saving from, a kindred spirit, like sky. That night, Vivi knew the ADA would know which night she was referring to. He kept saying, I am a humane God. He said lots of nutty things. I've never heard that first step thing before. I don't know what it means. Except maybe it meant that instead of cowering under your desk like you wanted, you rushed to rescue a rodent. Because it had left a token on your desk. I didn't really expect you to, but I figured I'd asked. Vivi hung up and pulled back the curtains to better see the totem. Her icon was on top. A ring of woodland creatures sat beneath it, heads bowed. Maybe, she thought, Sky didn't swallow the mouse. Maybe it crawled down his throat, an offering to appease their newly chosen guide when the buttons didn't work. Poor Sky, He'd been trying to warn her, not threaten her. He told her to give the button back to save her because nature had lost her voice and the animals were angry. The raccoons are pushing for revolution. They wanted their land back. They needed someone to get it for them. Sky, the humanitarian, hadn't been willing to do what they wanted. He didn't believe in war. Their prayers tore him apart. The first step to godhood is the relinquishment of one's self. The animals expected, believed, she could save them. So she had to. Like she saved the rabbit from Sky, Like she rescued the mouse from Dan. In return, they'd do what she asked. Vivi understood that if she continued on this path, people would die. I am a vengeful god, she whispered. And the rabbits applauded. That was H. L. Fullerton's The First and Second Offerings, as read by Josie Babin. Josie has a deep love for all things terror. That is why she chose an abandoned foreclosure as her first home for purchase. When not hanging drywall or convincing herself that the noise she heard was just the house settling, she can be found in a lab convincing stem cells to cure diseases. In-between times are filled with playing outside in the San Diego sun, imposing snuggles on her two cats, and sometimes even her human companion. Narrating stories is a special treat that she enjoys immensely, and she hopes you enjoy listening to them. That will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show was produced by our editor Scott Silk and associate editors Seth Williams and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey and theme music by Diane Severson. 
Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.